all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 484. If I've done my math right, it's a little bit different this week because our tried and true, your go-to right-hand lady, Carissa, is off on vacation this week. I hope she's doing something wonderful. Um, But Sarah and I are going to try to (laughs) piece together a show. (laughs) It's amazing how... I mean, I love my team. I think I appreciate the amazing work that they do uh, all the time. But there's just like someone goes on vacation and we're fine. We're fine. Carissa, you can go on vacation. It is fine. We are fine without you. We are fine. But boy, do we miss you. It's, it's always like that whole, there's just a little, it's a little extra panic on the inside of what if I mess up and Chris is not here to fix it. (laughs) That's, That's what it is. Yeah. Yep. Well, and it took both of us to be like, what's this episode number? (laughs) (laughs) Although I feel like we do that every week anyway. Um, This is a fun little show for you, though, because we are going to be sharing the Q&A that we did for our Patreon fam. So every quarter we do a live Q&A on video. And if you're able to submit a question in advance through the channels that are offered over on Patreon, or if you're able to attend live, we dive deep. We answer everything. Our favorite colors (laughs) to... um, you know, detailed questions. And you're going to hear bits and pieces of that, but you're not going to hear it all. So if you want to hear more, or if you just want to support the show and tell Sarah and I high five, you can head over to patreon.com slash the whole view and join our community there for lots of good stuff coming in addition to, like I said, quarterly shows like this. And we do a weekly bonus show on Patreon that is ad-free and available to you every single week. So you'll also get a bonus show about today. Um, If you're like, but but we already heard this because we are Patreon. Great. You can pop over and listen to the after show. The the after show is sometimes the most cathartic part for me. So our after show is a behind the scenes, what we really thought about a topic. And sometimes it derails into stories from our personal lives, but it is, you know, for me, it's always, it's how we, we wrap up our, our recording days. And it's always, for me, it's the part where we like, we wrapped the present during the main show. And then we got to tie on the beautiful bow for our Patreon. So I love our Patreon bonus episodes every single week. I know our Patreon fam do as well, and I hope all of you listeners come on over and check it out. There's actually a uh, example. One of our previous ones 
uh, is there for preview. So if you want to kind of find out what our bonus episodes are like every single week, there is one that you can just go listen to. Again, it's patreon.com slash the whole view. Sarah submitted her own question and um, is about to tell us her favorite color. Yeah, my I think the most important thing that our Patreon fam needs to know about us is what our favorite colors are. Sure, and mine sure. is definitely green. I I love green. I love looking at green. I think green is the most beautiful thing. But if I'm going to play a board game, I always pick the yellow piece because yellow is my lucky color to differentiate from favorite color. Stacy, what's your favorite color? Black. <laughs> I also really is that a like, color though? Isn't I know, it? but it's my favorite color. I also really like lilac, but I refuse to say that I like purple because I don't like all shades of purple. I just like the neutrality and the grayness of a lilac. Um, so yeah, you you should come visit us in the spring sometime when the wisteria are in bloom because they are exactly that shade and they're wild here. I know. So I love drive them. around love and they'll just be like wisteria just draping over like killing a tree because they're like they're so wild that they're like a, a they're a beautiful vine I will take it over whatever tree they're on any day of the of the year but uh they are that exact shade they're so I, beautiful I planted myself some for Mother's Day that was my Mother's Day gift oh that's a lovely Mother's Day gift growing beautifully I'm really looking forward to them um because they bloom right around Mother's Day every year so um and Olivia in the chat has said she also loves green and pastel purple. So look, we're just <laughs> hitting out of the park, straight out of the gates. Yep. Uh, should we get started with some of the questions? Yes. I'll read the first one because it's shorter. The first one? <laughs> and you're going to read the first, the first one that I see in my boxes. Oh, you, so you didn't, you don't see Kristen's question? No, I don't see it. Felicia's question is the first one I see. Okay. Well, I'll read your that's, question. Kristen's that's interesting question. that it's in a different order. Okay, cool. Maybe you didn't have your box open in time or something. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Thank you for all you both do. Uh, you can see I'm already stumbling over reading the very first question. <laughs> <laughs> Beekeepers hasn't kicked in yet. When is the best time to juke? If you do it at night, can it cause insomnia? Uh, that's a really great question. So it's really intense red light. So it seems to actually help cement circadian rhythms. There's a lot of studies showing that it improves sleep quality. Doesn't seem to matter what time of day, but my preference is before bed. There's uh, it's a hypothyroidism thing where I get really cold in the evening and then it warms me up and it's very calming. So there's like a immediate sort of I don't know, parasympathetic activation effect of it. And so I just find between feeling warm at the end of a juve session and then feeling sort of calm and relaxed that for me, that's actually how I start my bedtime routine. So there's no science to show and no reason why we would expect intense red light in the evening to interfere with circadian rhythms because that's the wavelength that helps to entrench circadian rhythms. So um, there's, no, there's no reason to expect that it would interfere with sleep. The only like really loose connection you could say is because it's increasing metabolism. Um, when our metabolism is a little bit too revved up when we go to bed, that it that can 
not interfere with sleep, but interfere with getting into those deep sleeps. But I actually find the exact opposites. The case for me personally, that I get better deep sleep. The thing that I'm constantly chasing is deep sleep when I juve in the evening. So yeah, I, basically anytime it fits in your schedule is the answer. There's no reason to, to think that juving in the evening is going to, to interfere with sleep. And I know like a lot of people use it at different times throughout the day. Like if you're sitting at your desk and you have one of the desk red lights that you're trying to neutralize the blue light that you're getting from a screen, right? Like there isn't, you, it doesn't have to be one time only, like you can get benefits from using it period. So, yeah. So. I also really like it right after lifting heavy there's it, cause it can help, um, with delayed, uh, onset muscle soreness. Um, so that is my preventative. If I know, if I know I really pushed it and that was a really hard workout, I'll actually juve when I get home too. That's a bonus. It's a bonus juve. Okay. Next question's yours. All right. Is this the one from Felicia? Yeah. <laughs> I'll read it. Uh, so excited that you collaborated with Serenity Kids to make a toddler formula. As a mom I, that thought I would never need formula, my third kid proved me wrong as we've had a lot of feeding difficulties since birth and I am having to supplement my breast milk with formula. He is not eating much solid food yet at 10 months and it looks like I will need to continue to use formula once he turns one. So I am glad to have an option that I trust and I'm happy with the ingredients. My question was, why did did you start with a toddler formula for kids age one plus rather than infant? And is there an infant formula in the works? It is extremely difficult to find an infant formula without canola or soy or corn added. And I don't understand why they all, even the best use low fat milk. Thanks. Um, this actually, I, I, um, it, it's one of the most amazing collaborations I've ever had the honor of being a part of working from the earliest concept ideas and brainstorming about ingredients and then the research and my my contribution to the serenity kids a2 grass-fed toddler formula um, was to do the research in terms of mature breast milk nutrient content and set nutrient targets uh, to then we worked with food scientists at serenity kids who did a ton of research in terms of the individual ingredients and we had these like incredibly complex spreadsheets to figure out exactly how much of each ingredient would most closely match mature breast milk. So mature breast milk would basically be after about, uh, we were looking at, I was looking at six months of, of age and up as the, the content of that breast milk because the nutrient content changes so much in the first few months. So um, nutritionally, the toddler formula meets all of the uh, FDA nutrient requirements for an infant formula. The reason why it's not approved as an infant formula is that the other criterion to be labeled an infant formula are uh, very, very expensive feeding studies, which I know Serenity Kids is looking into because they want to be able to have this approved as an infant formula, but it is prohibitively expensive at this point. So at this point, the toddler formula is only approved for 12 months and up but nutritionally it's equivalent to breast milk from a mature breast milk. So that's again, sort of that six month to two year age range. Um, but the reason why it's not approved as an infant formula is because of the, the lack of that feeding study at this point, it'll, it'll be a long process to get that formula approved as an infant formula. That is a fascinating thing. I hadn't really considered and is both, I understand why that's required, but also, um, 
I could see how that's very prohibitive for it's a major barrier companies. to entry for small companies. Yeah, especially when you're competing with you know lower cost, lower quality type food um, like corn and and these different kinds of things that would be in there, right? So your 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 margins are already um, less with a higher cost to produce the quality food. So. Um, uh, just a reminder, we're not medical professionals and we cannot give you medical advice. If it were me, I would definitely talk to my pediatrician um, about what is it in an infant formula that I need to be looking for and could this one work? And if you have a pediatrician that you trust, they could give you that advice. So um, Carissa wants us to remind you that she is putting links in the chat. So she put um, one post with more Juve info and the information on the Serenity formula in there if you're looking for that. So thanks for being our helper, Carissa. I love, I love that you like read our minds before it's even there. She's like- I also love that Carissa has an encyclopedic knowledge of every <laughs> resource we've ever created to be able to share with everyone. So um, have virtual high fives to Carissa like actual high fives. Yeah. I, well, they're still virtual, but they're, they're yeah. video. Oh, you can see, you can see where I had like super bad blisters from moving all of the mulch. Oh, okay. I'm going to read this question from Laura. I have been researching a lot about vitamin D 25 since I got back a result of 23 NG ML nanograms per milliliter. nanograms. Okay. Um, I don't know much about what things are supposed to be, but I know 23 is low. Mm -hmm. My doctor suggested 2000 IU, which I will do. I have listened to your vitamin D podcast. Thanks for all the info. Um, so I don't know that there's necessarily a question there, but um, I'm glad that Laura is working with a doctor and getting that normalized and has actually done the test. Um, that's something we talk about very often. Yeah, I, I will add that 23 nanograms per milliliter is below lab range. So it's far, far below what would be called functional range. So a functional medicine doctor uh, will either have 50 or 60 nanograms per milliliter as their bottom that they see. I know um, mine says 60, but my brain says 50. So we, I, I do 60 just for him because my brain says 50 to 70 is, is functional range. His says 60 to 80. And again, it's you know, the reason why we're not completely aligned is because the literature doesn't give completely clear guidance, but somewhere in that range, that's why we agree on 60, is um, where there's the lowest risk of chronic illness, all of the different things that you're looking for. Um, so 23 is very low. I bet you feel that. And I bet you will feel very different when you start supplementing. I will say, because I think this is the implied question is 2000 enough is I think what, what the implied question is in there and it might be. So um, what you need to bring your levels up will be very individual and will be determined by a whole range of factors. So for some people, 2000 will absolutely be enough to get them into that functional 50 to 80 nanograms per milliliter range. And for some people, they'll need 5,000. Some people might need 10,000. So the most important thing for you to do is work with your doctor to recheck. So about every three months, vitamin D metabolism is a very slow process. So it, it inches up over about that time. It'll also inch down over that time if you were to stop taking vitamin D. So what you wanna do is figure out what your maintenance level is. So how much you need on a regular basis in order to keep your vitamin D in that range. And that'll take a few years of testing every quarter to figure out. So. You might need less over the summer if you spend a lot of time outside, 
um, or depending on where you live, um, or you might, you might not, um, mine's pretty, pretty consistent throughout the year, how much I, I need to keep my levels in that functional range. So the most important thing isn't how much your doctor said to start with, it's that you retest to see if it's enough and to make sure you're not overshooting the mark because vitamin D toxicity is a thing. So, um, you don't, you definitely don't want to go above about a hundred nanograms per milliliter, unless there are some, uh, therapeutic applications of that high level of vitamin D, um, like cancer and cardiovascular disease. But, uh, that would definitely hundred percent be like work with your doctor on because those applications are beyond what I want to talk about here. So, um, so yeah, I mean, starting at 2000 IU is a very reasonable starting place, but just make sure that you're retesting to make sure it's enough and that it's not too much because that also could happen. It's a very individualized dose for what people need to get their vitamin D in the right range. You get the next question from Felicia. (laughs) All right. Uh, Do you guys have any suggestions on the best boundaries to setting around treats with a preschooler without making sugar seem more exciting? Oh, that's a good question. We had pretty strict limits regarding sugary treats until my oldest was three, pretty much only birthdays or holidays. However, anytime she would get something, she would just sit and devour it without stopping or taking a breath. I'm laughing because my almost 12 year old still does this. Um, She loves to bake now at four and a half. So she has had more opportunities to have treats mostly with honey or maple sugar. However, it has become a thing. I love sugar, she says, and often asks for more or wants something every day. I started implementing Dr. Sarah's current philosophy of saving it for the weekend, but I'm worried at this age, if I make it too much of a off limits thing that it could have repercussions later when she is more in control of her choices. Any ideas on the healthy way to approach this for a young mind is appreciated. That's a fascinating question. That's a great question. And I think it's so dependent on the personality of your kid. I think it's going to open up kind of a, sorry, I got something in my eye a minute ago, um, a can of worms. So for me, one of the things I've been really thinking a lot about as we think about diet culture is this idea of the limitations and the like connotations that we assign positively and negatively to food in and of itself. And if you recall, Sarah and I did a show not too long ago, I'm sure Chris will put a link in the show notes about um, can sugar every day still be healthy? And the answer ended up being yes, like you can still have nutrient sufficiency. And this idea of being really scared of sugar is something that I know Sarah and I both participated in, uh, about a decade ago, right? Like this, this idea of, um, being afraid of an insulin response and that sugar automatically is bad for you is something that can perpetuate absolutely this idea of repercussions later in life. And I will say with my teenagers, you know, we, as parents, we always wish we could go back and have the, the foresight of 2020, you know, like it's, you're able to look back and be like, Oh, if I would have done that differently, then this problem would be solved, but then there would be another problem and another problem. So I, you know, I don't like to operate in this idea of guilt, but I do think that my focus so much on demonizing certain foods and restricting and limiting 
definitely caused a period of time when the children had their own autonomy and their choices and their own money and they were going to school and they have access to these things that they would act kind of like I'm seeing this toddler act, right? Like I must have all of the things because it was restricted. And so I think if there's a way to talk about like balance, I think an almost five-year-old can understand yeah, I love sugar too. It tastes delicious, but I also love broccoli because it makes me feel good. And I also love protein because it helps my muscles be strong. I think there, we don't need to demonize in my opinion, like with, with the, the foresight that I have now, this idea that sugar is, is bad and that, you know, we need to restrict, or we need to like focus so much on limiting so much as we need to also focus on just like loving ourselves and having that neutrality with our bodies. And also knowing that like the nutrients that you need for the other foods are still just as important. And we can evoke a love for those things. And that if your daughter likes baking and you're baking together, like make a zucchini bread and enjoy every single bite without any guilt. If it's on a Tuesday, it doesn't matter. Like this is just, you know, I, I wish that I'd taken that approach I can't change what it is now, but I do know that we have altered a lot about how we approach things in the house because we saw those reactions when the kids were older and they had their autonomy and it became that boomerang. And I was like, oh, I created this situation by being so restrictive and demonizing certain foods. And I don't want my kids to feel badly because they like the way a cupcake tastes. Like, of course they do. We all do. Um, So I don't know, Sarah, if you have any thoughts now that your kids are older too. Um, We kind of differentiate between healthy treats and dessert. So there's a certain amount of sugar that I don't worry about at all, right? So like zucchini bread, like a muffin, I would call a, that's, you know, we're, we're making it with healthy, you know, nuts and flowers and vegetables. Like it's, it's a really healthy version of that food. And yes, it has some sugar in it, but I, I just consider that a, a, like it's just a normal food and we try to make the healthiest version of it, but we're we're not really calling that a treat. It's still special in the house because I, I don't have time to make muffins all the time. Um, But at the same time, we're not calling that a dessert. What we call a dessert would be the, the cupcake, right? So the difference between a muffin and a cupcake And the way that we talk about it is dessert's a treat. It's not, it's not something that you have it every day. If you have it every day, it's not a treat. Um, So it's something for special. Um, And so we try to reinforce the idea that um, eating something that's sweet is special, right? And it doesn't need, mean it has to wait for a birthday. Um, It can just be, Um, you know, it's, it's special because (laughs) I just moved, uh, 25 cubic yards of mulch (laughs) and I want a brownie. Um, that, that absolutely is based on a true story. Um, so, you know, we try to have that, you know, it doesn't need to be that you earned it, right. That's what we're trying to get away from, but it also, doesn't, it's not something that gets to happen every day. And the thing that we really work on in our house is not getting into that cycle where dessert is expected because if we have a treat 
too many days in a row. That is kind of the, the slope that my kids fall down is what's for dessert, not is there dessert tonight, right? It's a different question. So um, we definitely have dessert. I would say three nights a week is kind of, is kind of normal. And definitely if we have it three nights in a row, if I make something Friday and it lasts Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's always that Monday, like ripping off the bandaid. Oh, there's no dessert tonight. Um, but at the same time, we're not, I'm trying to not make it something that is associated with, uh, indulgence that you had to earn, um, or that it's, um, that it's something that you have to feel guilty about when you have it, but rather that it's, you know, a treat is a treat. The reason why we use the word treat is because it's special. And if you have it every day, it's not special anymore. That doesn't mean it has to be as infrequent as once a month. Um, but we're trying to find that, that balance in teaching them healthy eating behaviors that hopefully they'll carry through into their adult lives. And I would add to that just fruit can be something special after dinner too, right? And it can be sweet and it can also be really nourishing. And, you know, I know Sarah's daughters had bananas, um, after dinner for a long time when they oh, were bedtime little. bananas. Yeah. Bedtime bananas. Um, and for me, you know, if the kids say, you know, do we have any dessert? I might say, do you want an apple with nut butter? Do you want some berries and cream? And nine times out of 10, they'll be like, yeah. Like, and so I think sometimes it's just a matter of like everything else in parenting, pointing someone in a direction that meets their needs, but doesn't go in a direction that might be, I don't want to say unsafe, but right. Like in steering them towards the best choice that they might be able to make. But also if they choose to make a different choice, like my kids are like 16, right? Like my oldest is 16 and I'm like, okay, like you're almost an adult at this point. You're going to be living on your own. The concerns that I have around preparing him for adulthood extend beyond like what, what he's eating for dessert at this point. And I would rather focus less on that. But I think at that age, um, just encouraging, like doing things together, the act of making the zucchini bread and isn't this fun, right? Like, and it's, there's something joyous beyond just the sugar. And I think the more that we can associate those positive connotations around food, the less that we are driven to the actual sugar itself for an emotional release when we're an adult, because that's really what our concern is, right? Is this, this idea of creating some sort of unhealthy relationship with food in adulthood. And so I, I do think that that like over-restrictively approached, it's like walking this tight line of trying to make the muffin as healthy as it can be, right? Like I am notorious for adding in like zucchini and carrots and all these kinds of things when we make muffins, um, but not having any sort of negative connotation around when someone chooses to then eat that muffin, because then I think you're creating that, um, that nuance, the worry of food shame. And, um, it's, it's so hard to even feel or catch yourself, let alone as a parent, like when we're doing that, because we think, oh, I'm doing this in the interest of health, but like, is that one muffin really going to cause like health problems? You know, those are the questions that we need to kind of just be aware of. And then I try to ask myself more often. And when I find us going down the path of like people wanting food that 
is hyper palatable versus, you know, good for you, then we do a lot more of just like not having that stuff in the house so that when people are looking for something, it's, you know, there's bag salad, which my kids really like. My kids love bag salad. I don't know. But, you know, like if there's bag salad in the fridge and they're looking for something um, and that's there and something else isn't, then that's the choice that they'll make. And so it's not about like forcing that or shaming someone like you should eat the salad instead of the muffin. It's just, it's what's there for them. So yeah. One other thought that that made me think about Stacy is we also try to have the experience part of baking together with not baking. So I will, you know, my kids are old enough that, um, I mean, Mira is just about to turn 12 and she loves cooking. She's the kind of kid who says, Oh, can I help as she's walking by? but I'm trying to incorporate more with Adele, who is the kind of kid who's like, oh, great, supper's gonna be made for me. I'm gonna go do my own thing now. Um, But trying to incorporate both of them into any kind of meal prep to make that also a learning experience, but also like that fun um, time together that when they were little, it was always focused on baking. And now we can make mushu pork with the same connection. And then it's, it's not a dessert. It's just our meal. So I also try to make sure that it's not creating a nostalgia that's only associated with treats. That's a really good point. Yeah, I would agree. And what's great is that if you do that, then when your teenagers, when your kids are teenagers, they can make dinner for you. Like my kids each have their own night where they make dinner because they helped us in the kitchen and they learned all along. And so now Finn knows Taco Tuesday is his night and he knows how to ground the meat and, you know, put out all the stuff in the bowls. So um, I do want to just kind of touch on Olivia's questions in the chat because it ties in with this question before we move on to a different topic. Um, So she asks, is it bad for, I don't know what LO stands for. Um, Little one. Little one. Little one who loves fruits to have a banana at each meal. Sounds silly, but I feel like he loses the variety in his diet. He loves bananas and smoothies, all healthy, no added refined sugar, no dairy, no fillers. And he asked this for the same thing at most mealtime. I'm going to guess that this child is under the age of seven. And I'm going (laughs) to tell you because, yep, three and a half. um, (laughs) I have literally asked the question with two out of three of my kids from their pediatrician, how many bananas is too many bananas a day? <laughs> like, um, the pediatrician told me, I think he said five. And I was like, really? So if he has three, it's okay. And the pediatrician was like, yeah, he'll grow out of it. Like they just, they all go through a phase where they yeah. love bananas. Oh, I mean, again, we've already covered the bedtime bananas, yep. which were a thing in our house for probably a decade that that was what they would have right before bed. And it, it was part of bedtime routine. Like it wasn't it was every single night. The amount of bananas I had to get in the grocery store every single week when <laughs> every single person in the house had one or two a day, like it's, you'd go through the checkout and people would just give you the eyebrow, like, really? 25 bananas? Yep. That's how many I need for this week. That's why they're all different ripenesses right now. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it right now. Like obviously more variety is, is better, but bananas are a nutritious choice. They're great for the gut microbiome. Um, they're really high in, uh, potassium, which is a really important mineral that we, we can very easily fall short on. Um, and they're also very calming because they're high in tryptophan. So they're also my, (laughs) my little brother, 
used to have to eat a banana before violin lesson every week because my violin teacher could tell if he didn't get his banana based on his behavior. Oh, that's so uh, interesting. Yeah. So they are, they're very, and potassium is calming too. So right, it's potassium, magnesium, and tryptophan kind of all together. That's why bananas are so relaxing. And that's why for us, it was our bedtime food for the girls. So yeah, I wouldn't worry about it at three and a half. He's eating great foods. Like, yes, if you can replace one of those bananas with strawberries, you're getting more variety, but at three and a half, they also, kids need more carbohydrates than adults do. So you're supporting growth with those bananas. It's a whole food. Olivia, don't feel guilty. You're doing a great job. This show is sponsored by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store. It's thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Did you see they even have an awesome selection of responsibly sourced wine perfect for the holidays made with organic grapes? It's so awesome. We don't drink often, but when we do, or even to cook with, we always use a high quality wine and I totally trust Public Goods. Same. And I'm super picky about personal and home cleaning products and their quality and have fully vetted public goods. They are genuinely making affordable, safer products overall. Uh, For example, they have organic cotton and bamboo menstrual products that are half the price that I have seen in stores better for people and the planet. I love the clean look of their environmentally friendly, sustainable packaging too. I was shopping the other day and discovered their cool zero waste section and BPA free canned goods. They've got sustainably caught canned tuna with no added water or oils, artisanally cooked before canned. I can't wait to try it. And it's such a fantastic price. I love that they ethically source and develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and potentially harmful additives found in common marketplaces. They are committed to making products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. And because they use a membership model, it keeps costs low to pass on even more savings. And we got you all an awesome deal just for our listeners. Receive $15, $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. (laughs) Your enthusiasm. That is right. And they are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. As you can tell, Sarah and I are both like super excited. I'm like, I want that deal. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash whole view or use code whole view at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash whole view to receive $15 off your first order. I'm going to read this question for you and then you can read the question for me next. Um, Dr. Sarah, I'm so excited for your Nutrivore guidebook, and maybe you cover this in that, but how do you account for good for the gut foods in your Nutrivore scoring? For example, we know mushrooms have a great score and are good for the gut, but oats and rice don't have a great score and can also be, in moderation, good for the gut. How do we balance those superfoods in your gut health guidebook that may not have great Nutrivore score, but are focusing on the foods from different categories that have the highest score? Or is that something that you think 
would just naturally bounce out if we no longer consider any food without an allergy off limits. That is such a like detailed and perceptive question. I feel like Felicia has already read everything that I've written about Nutrivore <laughs> and is thinking about it in like so much academic detail. So the, the Nutrivore score is just a nutrient density score. So it is just a way of quantifying the nutrients per calorie that a food has, because that is vital information in terms of identifying uh, the, the healthiest foods, but it is not the only piece of information. So one of the things that uh, will be in the Nutrivore guidebook and eventually on Nutrivore.com is how we define superfoods beyond the Nutrivore score. So the Nutrivore score is one way to think about the value of food because it, it gives us a measurement, a quantification of the inherent nutritional value of that food, but it is not the only thing that we want to consider when we're choosing foods. So certainly how that food impacts the gut microbiome would be another thing. So in the guidebook, I kind of list like, what are the other, other ways that we can identify a superfood? So one would definitely be, has a really high Nutrivore score. That's easy, right? Tons of nutrients per calorie, superfood, check. Another one is a food being a really valuable source of a hard to get nutrient. So even if it doesn't have a really high Nutrivore score, but it has a specific nutrient that tends to be deficient in, and that is super, super valuable for our health, that earns that food a you know, nutrient superfood status, even if it doesn't also have super high nutrient density. So the example that I give in the book is garlic because it's really high in these unique thiosulfonates, um, allein and allicin, and those are correlated with uh, reduced risk of cancer. They're also good for cardiovascular disease. Like they're, they're really valuable phytonutrients, but you can make the same argument for something like oysters because they're such a valuable source of zinc and 73% of Americans are chronically zinc deficient. So that argument applies to a lot of other foods. And then the third way that a food could sort of earn that superfood status would be that the collection of nutrients it has uh, somehow work together synergistically to improve health outcomes. So foods that maybe don't have a really high Nutrivore score aren't a particularly unique source of nutrients, but the collection of compounds that they have improve health. And so nuts and seeds are, I think, the, the best example to understand of this. Their Nutrivore scores kind of range from 200 to Brazil nuts are the highest around 700. Those, that's kind of the medium range, but there's a ton of studies showing an ounce a day of nuts and seeds dramatically reduces all cause mortality, cardiovascular disease risk. Um, they're associated with all kinds of beneficial health outcomes. So because you can point to those large, you know, meta-analyses showing the benefit of moderate nut and seed consumption, you can say, look, like in moderation, another superfood, uh, you know, and in this case, we're talking about an ounce, maybe two per day. There's no benefit to eating them beyond that. So in that third category is where you would put foods that are really amazingly wonderful for the gut microbiome. So, you know, benefits the gut microbiome that is going to lead to reduced chronic disease risk because of the link between the gut microbiome and every single cell in the human body. So that's where we could categorize something that maybe doesn't have amazing nutrient density still as a superfood, 
because of its benefit to gut microbiome or other systems in the human body. So the Nutrivor score is one tool and one desperately needed tool that was a ton of work to develop, but it is not the only tool that we need in order to, to eat a Nutrivor diet. I, um, sorry, I've lost the window here. Um, it was one of the kind of questions that Sarah and I talked about also um, when you were talking about the Nutrivor score is this idea of not making it be, um, these are good foods and these are not good foods. Like that's not what the score represents. The score is there to simply figure out nutrient sufficiency for yourself in however you're eating. And another component of that is gut health. Another component of that is sleep and lifestyle, right? Like there's, there's all these additional components that go into it, but there was nothing else that existed to address. You'd think the basic function of food, which is nutrient sufficiency. So that's, you know, what, how I've kind of reframed thinking about the score itself is, is just really important to not only prioritize foods with a high score, because then you're not going to meet all of your needs. That's just one way to look at it. Yeah. Um, you only ate watercress because it's the highest Nutribore score food. You would be deficient in many essential nutrients. There's no such thing as a nutritionally complete food. So, um, so it's not, I'm, I'm really hoping that the communication around the Nutribore score avoids the trap of falling into like gamification of the Nutrivore score where like, it's all about only eating the highest score foods, because if we do that, it, it ends up, you know, if you only ate basically like leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables and mushrooms and fresh herbs, cause they're the highest Nutrivore score foods, obviously you'd be missing out on all of the nutrients that are inherent and exclusive to animal foods, to fish and shellfish. So it's, it's a, again, it's like one tool, but it's not, it's not the only tool. Stacy, I have heard slash read, it is better to use filtered water in skincare products. Some people even say for simply washing your face and hair. The reasoning seems to make more sense from some sources than others. I was wondering if this is true and if yes, has Beauty Counter studied this or planning to move in that direction? The last time I ordered counter time, it did not say filtered water, thanks. This is a fun one because Sarah and I both know where this comes from. <laughs> so uh, absolutely, first of all, Beauty Counter uses the highest water filtration system. They use reverse osmosis water and they also do studies and tests nine times for skincare, or eight times for skincare and nine times for makeup on heavy metals and contaminants that might be introduced in water, which let me be clear, no other brand on the market is doing. So when you hear another brand say something like, if you see water on a label and it doesn't say filtered, then that item is bad. That brand is instead of focusing on themselves and why their products are good and quality, they're focusing on trying to bring another brand down and with misinformation. So um, Beauty Counter is not moving in that direction. They uh, started that direction. <laughs> so absolutely, um, it's filtered. And I do, I do think that there is validity in using quality ingredients, period, right? And so if we think about water, I mean, Sarah and I did a podcast on 
what we know can be contaminants in water and why we suggest a reverse osmosis water filtration system because of it being the most effective at filtering out um, those potential contaminants. So if you're thinking about, um, for example, glyphosate, which could be in a filtered water, but not a reverse osmosis filtered water. And what is that doing on your skin? I, I don't know that there's necessarily been tests. Um, I'm sure we could PubMed at some point to see, uh, we, but we do know that that can be harmful to human health period. And so do I want that if I can avoid it? No. So I, I think that there's absolutely validity in using filtered water and other quality products, but that's also why um, Beauty Counter specifically is doing contaminant testing to check for those kinds of things. And one of the, like my favorite stories is they were using organic rose farmers. Um, this is like years ago. They used to have this rose water mist that I was obsessed with, but they don't make that anymore. But at that time they were using um, organic rose farmers and the everything about growing the rose was completely organic and, and couldn't have been any more, more pure. But what they didn't realize is that the people harvesting the rose petals were putting them in plastic bags and tying them up. And then they would like sit in the sun and the chemicals from the plastic bags were leaching into the petals. And in their studies, they found BPA and some other contaminants from plastic and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. They, you know, they looked at their source, um, their, uh, what do they call it? Supply chain. And they, you know, they looked at like every single ingredient that was going into this product. They look at the packaging, they couldn't figure it out until they talked to the farmers and figured this out. Beauty Counter gave the farmers burlap bags. So not only would no one have known that BPA was in the product, but by helping that farmer, it helped every other brand that they were giving those rose petals to. So this is like a big reason why I think, you know, I talk about testing, we talk about science all the time. Like it's not about is something good for you or not good for you. Of course, rose petals in and of themselves would be great. But without testing, you don't know what is or isn't in something. Ready? As I'll ever be. Actually, not as I'll ever be. I'll be so much ready and more ready. In like I'll two hours? So much in like two hours. But that's okay. <laughs> We're doing it now. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ana Luisa, a sustainable jewelry brand that believes high quality jewelry shouldn't cost the planet. I'm so excited to share with our listeners. Finding a jewelry brand that is certified carbon neutral, uses recycled materials, and wears like luxury is golden. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, finding high quality jewelry that is ethical and good for our planet means I can feel good about wearing it. I've been on a journey to overhaul my jewelry collection for a couple of years. I developed a nickel allergy and have since been rebuilding my collection to quality pieces. And Ana Luisa is one I have a huge wish list for. They have an absolutely amazing collection. I found it really hard to choose, but I'm definitely gravitating towards diamonds. <laughs> and they have so many different styles. There really is something for everyone. 
And because I can't really wear jewelry on my neck anymore, ear candy is my fashion of choice. I got the Hannah in collage style, which reminds me of a Matisse painting. They're little elegant hoops with designs that uh, fill the inside and an elegant gold trim. They're the perfect size, super comfortable, and don't irritate me at all. I was surprised how affordable these pieces are too. Even gemstones and as I mentioned, diamonds. The pieces are timeless, chic enough for every day, and conscious luxury you can dress up. Yes, I may have gotten my mom a pair of Hannah's too. Hers are the blue marble and remind me of stunning tile art we saw while traveling in Portugal together. We all left our shopping bags in the taxi that day. It was my fault. Uh, So it's like revisiting that trip. They're so beautiful and uh, because Ana Luisa is having an awesome BOGO deal right now, I was able to also get Kiddo a summer heart necklace. Um, it's called Summer, but it comes with like a little set that's so cute stacked together. Oh, gifting is such a good idea. I absolutely recommend checking out Ana Luisa. That's shop.analuisa.com slash whole view. I love them. Their pieces start at $39 and they are currently running the biggest sale of the year. You can get 60% off the second item if you go to shop.analuisa.com slash wholeview. So this question is from Laura and Laura says, I did not fast before uh, my blood draw. And my indirect bilirubin was not normal, but direct bilirubin was. I'm going to go back to uh, fasting to retest this um, or retest it fasted. The doctor did say I could have an ultrasound of my liver and spleen, but I am going to retest my blood fasting for sure. Any feedback on elevated bilirubin? So um, bilirubin is uh, a a breakdown product of heme. So uh, when you bruise, for example, so you have enzymes that are coming down to break down those blood cells. Um, The first product breakdown uh, is bilirubin. And then the second product breakdown is biliverdin. So bilirubin is red and biliverdin is green. And that's why your bruise will fade through those colors. It's the breakdown of heme by an enzyme called hemoxygenase one, which I did my PhD on. So that's why I'm super nerdy right now. Um, Breaking down the heme into bilirubin and then into biliverdin. And then it can be cleared from whatever the tissues are. So the reason why um, bilirubin is a sign of liver injury is that is the thing that causes your um, eyes to go yellow when you're jaundiced is actually the buildup of bilirubin and it's metabolite biliverdin in the blood. And it's because there's so much in the, it's being formed in the liver as part of bile salts. So they are, they do both of these jobs. They're both a breakdown product from heme. And they're also a a chief component of bile, which the liver is making. I, as, I mean, I can't interpret lab results because I am not a medical professional, but one of the things that I would make sure to ask my doctor for in retesting is a complete liver panel. So there's other things that could cause elevated bilirubin like bruises. Um, and if you were worried about liver injury, you would also be looking for elevated uh, AST and ALT. Uh, so other enzymes that are, ALT especially is 
uh, a unique enzyme only found in hepatocytes, the main cells in the liver. Um, AST is a little bit of a broader marker, but it's still a good marker of, of liver injury. So um, hopefully the doctor's already on it and is doing a full liver panel to check all of these other things beyond just looking at bilirubin. Um, and an ultrasound is still a great idea because the, the main things that they would be wor worried about would be um, gallstones. They would be worried about uh, a cyst on the liver or something like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cirrhosis. Um, again, with all of those, you would expect to see other markers of liver injury. So um, it's, it's probably one of those things that you're going to go back and check fasted and it's going to be fine. There's not really a, a, a super clear reason of why it would be elevated because you ate. Um, I'm not, I don't know offhand if a liver panel is normally on a fasted versus not fasted um, blood work uh, rec requisition. Um, but you know, always rechecking is, is important. I've certainly in all my years getting blood work done. Um, I have had elevated liver enzymes here and there there's stress can do it, right. There's all kinds of things that can transiently, you know, stress an organ and you'll have it show up on, on one blood test and then you'll go and retest and it's normal. So again, it's very important to follow up. Um, and definitely I would check and make sure that you're getting a full panel done so that you're looking at other markers of liver health and not just bilirubin. Um, but then nothing wrong with an ultrasound. I did a, a liver spleen gallbladder ultrasound a few years ago, uh, when I had, um, like a tender abdomen, it turned out to just be a torn, uh, like a pulled muscle, but I didn't know. So, you know, I did the ultrasound just to make sure it's always good to make sure, uh, preventative medicine is the awesomest kind of medicine. And while we're kind of on the topic, I haven't updated the Patreon, but we talked about my high white blood cell count. I let Sarah know. Um, I retested and it came back to like almost normal levels, not still on the high end, but um, what my doctor said, they're no longer worried about. So retesting before you get yourself, you know, worked up and convinced that in my case, I was Googling all kinds of cancers, <laughs> you know, like yeah. all this stuff, um, is a, is a good, good way to go. So, um, Lindsay says, Sarah, I would love to hear about how your garden project is going. Such well, a lovely question. I love that question. Um, so, uh, it's, it's going slow. So what happened was, so we live in the suburbs of Atlanta. So our soil is not soil. It is red Georgia clay that is roughly the texture and hardness of concrete. And so what we've been doing, cause I wanted to do in ground beds, the idea is to do a dig once bed. So I'm digging down uh, 18 inches. If I can, we're hitting a lot of boulders and all kinds of just <laughs> concrete like things. Um, and then amending that clay with wood chips. So I found a tree removal company that would deliver free wood chips. And I, uh, he said, how many loads do you want? And I, I said, how, how much is a load? And he said, oh, it's about the size of an SUV. That is not how much a load is. They're 12 to 13 cubic yards, which is more like three or four SUVs per load. So I said, not knowing that piece of information, I'll take two. So 25 cubic yards 
of uh, wood chips got dumped on my front lawn. They immediately started composting. They were steaming and going moldy. It was really intense. And it had to come off my lawn as quickly as possible to not kill the grass. They also broke my in-ground sprinkler system while they dropped it off. It's a, it, it turned out to maybe not be the, the moment that I said I'll take two was not a great choice of mine. So it took me 29 hours working um, six out of eight days, no, five out of eight days um, with some help from my family for about half of it. Uh, my neighbors actually came and chipped in, which was amazing to move it into the backyard where it's off my grass and that wrecked me. So my muscles have been really sore. My low back has been super tight. That's pulling on my hips. So I'm having some fibro pain in my hips. And so the last couple of weekends, I haven't been able to get back into digging. So the digging is about half done, maybe a little bit over half, not quite two thirds. Um, so I would imagine there's about 20 to 25 more hours of like manual labor to get those beds done. And I've missed my window for fall planting. So at this point, the nice thing is I've been able to let go of kale this winter and just focus on this is a cool project and I can do it more as a hobby because I've got basically all the way into February to get it ready. So it is still, it is still in the works. It is still going to happen because right now there's just a big hole in my backyard and one, and one part that's actually like the ground is ready. But again, we just, we didn't have it on time to actually plant plants before the weather got really cold. So it's going, but it, it's, uh, was a bigger project than initially anticipated, especially to do it the cheap way, which is the way that I wanted to do it without, you know, having, you know, a few thousand dollars worth of compost delivered to my house, which was the other alternative. I decided no free wood chips, free wood chips are better. <laughs> and, and yeah, it was just, it was way too much physical activity for me over, over that week. So I'm, I'm still recovering from it. But it's in the works. It's it in the works. It's still happening. Oh, Katie's is, aha. Uh -huh, yep. Yeah, I just need to scroll. I got it in front of me. Okay. I was like, I could read it if you want. <laughs> uh, hi ladies. Love your content. Dr. Sarah. I think you mentioned before having a checklist of healthy habits slash foods. You try to get in daily slash weekly. Is this something you'd be willing to share? I'd love something consolidated to work towards that we could all benefit from non-medical, of course. Aha. The smartness. The whole view will be right back, but if you want to hear the answer to that, you'll need to pop over to Patreon because it's a little too personal to share here. Do you have any science on acupuncture? Uh, there is science on acupuncture. Um, I haven't ever done a super in-depth look at it. Um, I have a, a friend, Anne Angeloni, um, who is an acupuncturist, and she is like super nerds out over the science and acupuncture. So she would be somebody to, to find online. She, I believe her website's anangeloni.com. Um, but she's like written books about, you know, different acupuncture points. And what's really fascinating is of course, acupuncture and dry needling are the same thing, right? Acupuncture is the Eastern medicine version and dry needling is the Western medicine version. And they, they come out of Dry needling comes out of scientific studies into acupuncture. Um, and so there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely science behind it. 
Um, I've had dry needling done uh, when I had like tennis elbow and I was going to see a, a physical therapist and it was incredibly helpful. Um, but it's not, it's not part of my self-care routine on a regular basis. Um, but there is a lot of science behind it. So uh, I think it's also like anything, a good practitioner is a good practitioner. So um, definitely I'd recommend if you're interested in the scientific resources behind that to check out Ann Angeloni. And otherwise my answer is yeah, but I don't really know it. Yeah. Um, so I'll take this opportunity to mention that we as a team are looking at adding some additional features and benefits for patrons based on um, maybe some growing tiers. And one of the benefits that you have if you are part of our Patreon community is getting to submit questions and voting on potential podcast topics as something that we're looking into doing. So if you feel really passionately about wanting that as a topic, um, you have that as uh, a request for Sarah too. And maybe if you have a great resource, we can have them on the show, Sarah. We haven't had a guest on the show in a long time, but that could be something too that we can look at too. She's like, oh gosh. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about the amount of work that I would have to do to fill my brain for full of acupuncture and dry needling studies is to me almost as intimidating as all of the COVID vaccinations. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, my base knowledge is so it's actually like lower than it was going into the, the COVID-19 vaccination studies. So the amount that I have to teach myself in order to be able to speak to it in an informed way would be extremely high. So uh, it would be definitely a topic to request and then one that we'll have to wait until I have all of that time. Yes, so there, there you have it. If, if there are topics um, that you feel passionately about, um, that is that is the way to get them in like me i just you know i submit the questions i started an outline on <laughs> hey now the last one i started an outline on we have the adhd show coming the partnership adhd show coming with matt out tomorrow you liked that show so be oh, fair uh, again I'm just going to say for Matt, I just, I found that show so illuminating. It was, um, I mean, you guys are all going to love it when I, when it comes up for our Patreon who are watching this live, you'll get to listen to the show tomorrow. Um, just, just illuminating, illuminating is the best word for it. Um, but the show that you requested before that was the, the Halloween episode on the science of fear. I'm on fire, yeah. man. Fascinating. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not you. saying your ideas are bad. I'm just saying they almost always end up in a lot of work for me. You know, and the other the other one that I've shared that I know um, listeners will be happy to hear is coming is the booster shot and child COVID vaccine show. So we, we do have that coming. And I know you've been working on the science on that for quite a while. Now that we have full approval on the 5 to 11 vaccine, um, that is a topic that we will be addressing. So, um, okay. Felicia is no longer here, but she'll watch this back later. Once your Epic Garden is in full bloom, how much do you anticipate that it will reduce your need for the farmer's market and grocery fruits and veggies? Um, that's a fantastic question. I am starting with 140 square feet 
with a lot of room to expand if, uh, if that goes well. Um, and I'm trying to plan it so that the, even we're doing the upfront labor investment in order to have something that should be relatively straightforward to maintain, right? 10 minutes a day type thing with the occasional couple hours to do a job. Um, I'm hoping to be able to get to start with just that 140 square feet, about 50% of our vegetables from that garden. Um, so that is with rotation planting and sequential, right? Starting seedlings inside and growing in a top compost layer with uh, worm towers embedded to add worm castings throughout. So putting a lot of, I'm doing a lot of research into soil fertility and optimal growing conditions and then what grows in my area and what cultivars or variants grow in my area in order to ideally have a really overproductive 140 square feet. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be, I'll be ecstatic if it's about 50% of our vegetable consumption. And then, um, if that goes well, I also have plans to put in a, a small orchard in the back. I have a fig tree back there now, and I want to just add maybe like five or six more fruit trees that are all weird fruits, like thing, not common things that you could find anywhere, but things that are either super seasonal that you can only get at a certain time of year or that you, when you can get them, they're crazy expensive. So like a pomegranate, the very first one I want to plant is a Fuyu persimmon tree. Um, so I'm just kind of doing some, also some side research on that because the spring would be a great time to put bare root trees in. So uh, yeah, um, also one of the YouTube channels that I found really helpful is the Epic Gardening channel. So when you called it an Epic Garden, I felt really special. <laughs> it was kind of like Kevin Espiritu's garden. That's, that's what I thought. Uh, it was interesting watching you just totally nerd out about gardens and it cracks me up because it's like, it's both of our personalities that if we're going to do something, we're going to do it like 5,000 thousand percent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Do you ever, do you ever do something, you know, half asked? No, oh. no, no. Why, why? why would I do a half a job? No, I'm going to do, oh. I'm going to be the, why have a reasonable thing. amount of houseplants when you can literally turn your whole great room into a jungle, you yeah. know, exactly totally normal. Like completely. All right. You've mentioned before that one or maybe both of your children are sensitive to red dye. Can you elaborate on this? Maybe how it was diagnosed, symptoms, etc. And also, how do you go about e avoiding exposure? My one-year-old just had her first ear infection and subsequent first round of amoxicillin, and she was completely, and she was a completely different child taking it, leading me to wonder if she may be sensitive to the red dye in it. Um, so also, that affects gut health. So yeah. Um, it wasn't diagnosed by a medical professional other than me reporting it to my pediatrician and her going, yep, that sounds like it. Um, so it's my oldest is very sensitive to food dyes in general, especially red 40, like red 40 turns her into an emotional wreck. So at this age, it's like PMS on steroids. It is the most crazy thing. And she's, she'll cry and she'll just have no control over it or she'll, it's, it might just start with fury. Like we, we call it turning into the Hulk or hulking out. Um, so it might just turn into fury and then in unconsolable crying. Um, but it's definitely an emotional reaction. And I figured that out. It was the first thing that I figured out about her before I started my, like really started my health journey. So we figured it out when she was about three 
And again, it was an emotional response. So she would first become hyper within minutes of eating. I mean, within minutes of eating some kind of candy first become hyper, then a temper tantrum rage, and then crying inconsolably. And, um, because we didn't have a ton of candy at that age, it was pretty easy to identify when it was happening. And I had the benefit of having my mom, having figured that out about my brother. So having a brother who also kind of hulked out when they had food dyes as a kid. And so I had the benefit of being able to think about that through the lens of seeing very, remembering very similar behavior in one of my brothers when he was young, where he would just flip out. Um, Donnie's not watching this. He's fine. Um, so, so, uh, that was, yeah, that was probably the first thing I ever put together in terms of how one of my kids was, no, it definitely was the first thing I put together, how one of my kids was reacting to food. And it was just because it was such a immediate response, you know, within 10 minutes or so of eating the food, it was really easy to, to put two and two together for me. And the way we avoid it, it, I mean, now it's easier because she could, if she had to go on antibiotics for some reason, she could take a pill. Um, but at the time I would, I would just say, we need the formula without the food dyes and, and they can do that. So, um, and same with my youngest who actually was like super sensitive to amoxicillin. So we had to, we had this whole other thing she's so sensitive to dairy. We had to also make sure, right. That it was a dairy free formula, which is a little bit harder because there's lactose in a lot of them. Um, so you just talk to your pediatrician and say, Hey, I've noticed this behavior. We're going to avoid food dyes. Most of the places you're getting exposed to food dyes are packaged foods and candies. So, um, but yeah, medication is definitely, definitely a place, but you can, you can request the kind that doesn't have dye. And there's always certain flavorings that are associated with the dye. They can make a version of it without the dye. So just, just ask, just open communication with the pediatrician and the pharmacist. That's, that's what it takes. Yes. And I also want to say, you know, having an ear infection makes one irritable just mm -hmm. in and of itself. And an amoxicillin would be a disruption to the gut health, which could also affect behavior. So you know, it doesn't hurt to get the, the dye-free or the unflavored, or there's a lot of options at that age for medication, but also consider that if that's the first exposure, it, that might, there might be more contributing to that than you're seeing. And that that's part of kind of the elimination process is at the next exposure, like maybe at a hot dog or, you know, there's so many things that it's in seeing and just watching and learning from the behavior because it's really difficult to properly test for a reaction to something versus an allergen to something like they're just you know people can try to do testing and maybe identify things that you're super reactive to or something like that but in the case of something like food dye it might not show up in you know a testing that you would do but if you are watching the behavior of someone change after consistently being exposed to different types of red dye, it's not a difficult thing to be like, okay, I'm seeing a reaction. Now I'm going to do the thing that I know stops it and stop consuming it. Um, and also I think it is something that quite often we either grow out of or get used to as we're older. I don't know if it's because our bodies are bigger or something, but Sarah, you said your brother, I also, my brother as a young child had you know, extreme reactions and he, he doesn't anymore. Um, so I don't know like what that mechanism is, but Adele's 14, she's gonna be 15 in two months, which 
let's just take a moment to let that sink in. Wow. Um, but she's still like, if, um, you know, it's like the thing now that teachers will have candy in their classrooms and she's just like, no, nah, I can't eat that. Like, she's also, she doesn't like how she feels when she doesn't have control over her emotions. And so she also like, she chooses not to have it. So she's at a friend's house and she's like, oh, I can't have food dyes. And she, we have a rule that we've had since the kids were really little, that if you miss out on a treat at a birthday party or at a after school activity or school, and everyone else was there, like, it's, it's okay. If you missed out, it's no fun, but come home and tell me and we'll have a treat. And so this has been going on since, you know, they were three and five, um, oh wait, three and six. I know how old my kids are. Um, and so it's, it's just, it's how we've navigated having intense food sensitivities in our day-to-day -day lives. Like, yeah, everyone got a treat and we weren't prepared for it. So we didn't have something for you. So come, just come home and tell me about it. And then we'll, we'll find a treat. Um, and that treat might be a square of chocolate. It might not be a big thing, but um, that's kind of also how we navigate. So if someone comes home from school and says, I really missed out today, they were doing a science project and it involved Oreo cookies and gummy worms. I'll say, okay, let's ha let's have some chocolate. And it's, you know, I, I really try to empower my kids to um, say no thank you to something that's going to make them feel crummy. And that the trade for that is we still get to have the treat. So just because you missed out in that moment doesn't mean you'll miss out permanently. Are there any specific university programs or organizations you can recommend that we could donate to in order to support scientific research around the nutrition and lifestyle topics that the whole view focuses on? That's such a good question. You talk very often about studies that are upcoming. Um, is there a place where people could donate to those? Uh, so Mickey and Angie from Autoimmune Wellness have a, uh, a, a, I don't know, it's an organization where you can donate to it and 100% of the money goes to funding AIP studies. Um, so that's something you can find on autoimmunewellness.com. Um, but in terms of broader than that, um, some of this research is being funded through like Kickstarters and Indiegogo campaigns. Um, when that happens, I try to share it in my newsletter. So um, make sure you're subscribed to my newsletter is kind of the way to find out about those things. There isn't at this point a central organization that is focused on um, our approach to health and wellness sort of broadly and funding research. So, um, you know, at this point, it's just one-offs uh, other than Nikki and Angie's kind of funding all kinds of AIP studies. It's still AIP focused. Do you want to read Jean's question? Sure. If somebody has already asked this, please forgive me. No forgiveness necessary. You're always allowed to ask a question. Um, so have you looked at Pfizer's kids vaccine data? How comfortable do you feel about it? Was the study big enough? Do you have any hesitation about vaccinating your youngest right away? Wait, wait, wait. We're not going to share the answer to this one over here on the main feed, right? This is just for our Patreon fam. Awesome. So thus concludes all of our submitted questions. I will say Deborah, who put one in after, asked what your resource was to learn how to plant your garden. And Krista already put a link in the chat to your epic gardening YouTube channel. Slash, uh, slash my boyfriend. <laughs> okay. Um, one of many, actually, for that matter. 
So I'm going to um, thank everyone who watched this back. And for those of you that are here live, I'm gonna stop the recording so we can hang out. We hope you enjoyed this question and answer and little preview into what it's like to hang out with us over on Patreon. Again, if you want to support us and the show, you know, we produce this podcast ourselves and your support really makes it happen. So thank you so much. You can do so over at patreon.com slash the whole view and by shopping with our sponsors. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And of course, we'll be over in Patreon in just a moment. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.